Well, brothers and sisters, we live in tumultuous, perilous times. I know many of us probably come in with heavy hearts this morning and are very discouraged. But I hope that God will bless His Word today. Help me very much in delivering this Word to you all. So let's bow our heads together and pray one more time. Oh, Lord God, my Father, our Father in Jesus' name. Oh, Lord, we come before you. Lord, we are but dust and ashes. We are nothing before you, Lord, but yet you loved us and you set your love upon us from eternity past. Lord, we are broken people. I'm a broken instrument, Lord. Please use me, oh Lord. Please strike a straight blow with your word this morning. Please bless this word, O Lord. Please encourage our hearts this morning. Please lift us up that we might think on things in heaven where Christ is seated, our head and our Savior. O Lord, I pray that you'd open our ears this morning. I pray that you'd bless this word, that you would be glorified, that your saints would be edified, and that sinners would be convicted and brought into your kingdom. O Lord, I can do nothing apart from you. I pray for this anointing this morning on this message. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of the sermon this morning is, Why Do You Persecute Me? For Christians, there is no more comfortable of a doctrine in all of Scripture than that of the believer's union with Christ. And there is no more vexing of a doctrine in Scripture than the guarantee of true Christians being persecuted in this world. Yet these two doctrines, union and persecution, are inescapably linked. With the assurance and comfort that comes from our union, so too the trial and testing of persecution comes. But the power and help to endure persecution comes through the doctrine of the Christian's union with Christ their Lord. I hope to show that to you this morning. But many texts we'll be going through today in the New Testament will bring that forth. But one text I think epitomizes this idea of union with Christ and persecution is found in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Acts 9, 1 through 5. Here we see Saul of Tarshish on his way to Damascus to persecute, kill, and imprison Christians. And then he's encountered by the risen Lord. Acts 9, 1 through 5. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Interesting enough, the man to whom this was said, Saul of Tarshish, who would soon be called Paul, would go on to write and proclaim this message of union with Christ and persecution more than any other before and after him. So, what is union with Christ? What is the doctrine that Scripture teaches of union with Christ? I'm going to be borrowing heavily from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' outline of the systematics concerning this doctrine of uh, union with Christ. So before we go into what it is, we have to understand what it's not. So first and foremost, 
We as Christians do not get absorbed into God. Our essence or being does not get absorbed into our Lord's essence or being. This is the error of mysticism. So God is one in being, three in persons. And we are one essence, but we do not get wrapped up in, in His essence when we get united with Him in faith. That is mysticism, and we're not teaching that here. That's not the, that's not the doctrine of union with Christ. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The Bible teaches very clearly that you and I will exist as individuals throughout the countless ages of eternity. Consider the two natures in our Lord, His human and divine natures, are separate and distinct, but they are joined. And that's part of what we're learning here this morning, is that we do not get absorbed in the essence of God, but we do get united with Him. And yet there's distinction. We still remain our individual selves, and God remains God. But on the other end of the spectrum, there is the equal error of thinking this is simply a union of interest or cause. To see it as a union of two persons with the same goal. So when we are united with Christ, we're not simply united in the same cause with Him. We're not just simply saying, well, Lord, I agree with what you're doing, and I'm going to join the fight with you, therefore we're united. No, that's not what we're saying either. So it's not a mystical union of getting absorbed into Him. It's not just a union of cause. So then, if it's not these, what is the union with Christ? The doctrine of the union with Christ. We're going to look at six points here of what it is, and then we're going to look at the consequences of the union with Christ. So first, it is a spiritual union. 1 Corinthians 6.17, it says, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Paul says in this chapter that if you are committing sexual immorality with a harlot, you are of one body with her. So he's trying to say those who are united with the Lord are one spirit with him. Using that analogy, later on in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, as we will see, causes us to be united with Christ through faith. And so it is a spiritual union, first and foremost, by the Spirit of the living God. Number two, it is a mystical union. Ephesians chapter 5 lays this out here, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Just as a husband and wife are made one flesh, yet are still separate persons, so in a deeper and higher way we are made one with the Lord. It says we're bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. It's a mystical union. Not only is it spiritual, it is mystical at the same time. Number three, it is a vital union. We see this in John's gospel here. John 14, verses 19 through 20. Jesus speaking here. Because I live, you also shall live. 
At that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. And later on in that high priestly prayer, Jesus says in John 17, he's praying to the Father here that they might be one, even as we are one, I and them and thou and me, that they may be made perfect and one. There's a vital union. Our life, our spiritual life, our vitality is brought in by Jesus Christ. He is the vine and we are the branches, it says in John 15. So we are united with him as he is in the Father, we are in him and he is in us. And this is a vital union. It's where all of our life comes from as Christians. It's this doctrine of the union with the believer with Christ. It's a vital union. And of course, the scripture passage that I think lays this out more clearly than any others is Galatians 2.20. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live by, in the flesh, I live by faith and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a vital union. And it's a very interesting passage there, because many people say they are Christians, but when you're saying you're a Christian, you are declaring that Christ lives in you. It's the greatest thing this side of eternity to say that, to say that Christ lives in you. So as I meet other people, and they say they're a Christian, say, does Christ live in you? As a Christian, you say, yes, Christ lives in me. That is what we're declaring. We're united with Christ, and Christ dwells within us. It's a powerful truth. And the more we understand this, the more we will live accordingly. Christ, does Christ live in you this morning? Point number four, not only is it a spiritual union, not only is it a mystical union, not only is it a vital union, it is an organic union. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, the difference between organic and vital is this term, organic suggests a kind of two-way traffic. It is a union in which we give as well as receive. Now, don't get confused here. We can give really nothing to the Lord. But as we're united with Him in one body, we are also, as brothers and sisters, one body as He is the head. And there's a give and take in this body. As it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working, which every part does its share, causes growth of the body by the edifying of itself in love. Everyone plays their part in the body of Christ. We are not just passive. So as we have united with Christ, we get all of our vitality and life from Him. But as we give that, we also give to the rest of the body. We also live in this organic union, one with each other. So that's not just passive. We don't just wait from this grace from the Lord, and we don't just simply wait. We continue to do. We continue to live our lives with each other. We continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So it's not passive. It's organic. Dr. Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, I'm increasingly convinced that what chiefly accounts for the low state of spirituality in the Christian church is the failure to grasp these doctrines. We think so much in subjective terms. And we spend so much time trying to work something up that we fail to see the way to become holy is to understand the truth about ourselves 
and to realize our high calling and our privileged position. This is the way to holiness, brothers and sisters. It's to understand these doctrines. It's to understand the truth of God's words. It's to understand who we are in Jesus Christ. To understand what He has done and understanding the consequences of our union with Him. It's not working up an emotional experience. It's understanding what Christ has done for us and that Christ lives in us. Point number five. It is a personal union. There's an error the Roman Catholic Church teaches that there is no salvation outside of Mother Church and that you are united with Christ. You receive these spiritual blessings through the church as the mediator. We say no. We do not agree with that. Every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has a personal relationship and connection to the Lord. And obviously, as fellow believers, we come together as individuals that have been united with Christ, and we worship Him in spirit and truth as a body of Christ collectively, but it's individually we are connected to the Lord, not through the church first and then the Lord. It's a personal union. We have a personal connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we reject the teaching that it comes to the church directly. And point number six, it is an indissolvable union. It'll never be done away with. It's permanent. You find this in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39. Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are united with Christ this morning, it is done. It has perfectly been made whole. It can't be done away with. Even if every demon in hell and every person on this earth is to war against you and try to rip that union apart, it can't happen. God has promised it. It is solid. It will never pass away. If you are united with Christ this morning, you are united with Him forever. And nothing will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Know that that is God's promise. He sworn it by an oath. And God, who cannot lie, will surely bring this to pass. So we've seen that these six elements, that it's a spiritual union, that it is a mystical union, that it is a vital union, an organic union, an individual union, and that it's an indissolvable union. So if that's what it is, how does union with Christ, how does that establish? How does it come about in someone's life? How is we as Christians should think about this if we were united with Christ this morning? Well, firstly, it's by the Spirit. And secondly, it's by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Paul goes on to say, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So what we're being taught here is Paul says this is regeneration. This is the doctrine of regeneration that the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the gospel comes to God's elect and he regenerates them. And he works that calling of the gospel effectually in their souls. And he grants them repentance and faith, which is conversion. And that faith is uniting yourself to the Lord Jesus, trusting in Him and all that He's done and all that He is. And that faith that we're given as a gift by the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. It's an instrument by which we're united with Christ. And once that happens, that union is set. It is solid. It doesn't go away. 
And this is, of course, done by the Spirit of the living God. The Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, comes and regenerates us and causes us to be united with Christ through the preaching of the Word. It's the order of salvation, as it were. We're predestined before the foundation of the world. Then God calls His elect people in this world by the preaching of the gospel and the effectual call, the regeneration of the Holy Ghost. He produces faith in us. And that faith unites us to Christ who is in heaven. And His righteousness becomes our own and His blood cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, "...for faith draws increasingly on His fullness. And the more we realize the truth about the union the more we shall draw upon it. So my brothers and sisters, we need to understand union with Christ more and more if we want to continue to grow in grace and and continue to grow in the fullness of God. If we do not understand this union with Christ, we are bound to go astray, and we are leaving grace on the table, as it were. If we understand this, we draw on His fullness, if by faith we continue to believe that He is our head and we are united with Him and He is in us and we are in Him, we will continue to grow in holiness and we will become more like Him. That is the way to holiness. That is the way to grow in grace. Anthony Hokema says, Once you have your eyes open to this concept of union with Christ, you will find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. It extends all the way from eternity to eternity. It extends all the way from predestination to glorification. That is the truth of union with Christ. So, we've seen how it's brought about. It's brought about by regeneration and faith. And so, when that happens, what are the consequences of the union? So, we've seen what it's not. We've seen what it is. We've seen how it is brought about. So, what happens then? What are the consequences of this union with Christ? Well, there are two. There is an objective federal consequence, and there is a subjective spiritual consequence. First, the objective federal consequence of the union with Christ. Romans chapter 5 teaches us that all of humanity, the sinful mass of humanity, is united to Adam. He is our federal head. He is our representative. So the word federal is just another word for covenant. He is our covenant head. When God created Adam, when God created Adam in His image, He set him within the Garden of Eden, and He gave him commands to live by And Adam broke that covenant with the Lord. As the covenant head, he broke that covenant, therefore plunging all of humanity into sin. And the curse of God was brought upon this world and upon humanity. And we, as people born in this world, are naturally united to that Adam. And so therefore we are cursed, and we are sinful, and we are without hope. But what Paul goes on to say is that we need a new federal head. We need a new representative. We need someone else to come and represent us. And that is Jesus Christ. He comes in the fullness of time, the seed of the woman, to represent us and to allow us by the Spirit and by faith to be united to a new federal head, a new covenant head. Paul lays this out in Romans 6, verses 4 through 8, this reality of what happens when you're united with Christ. Or do you not know... That as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism in death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection." knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, 
that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that if you're united with Christ, all that is true of Christ becomes true of you. We have died with Christ. We've been crucified with Him. We've been buried with Christ. We've been resurrected with Christ. And as Christ has ascended on high and reigning in heaven, we are seated with Him. This is the truth of the union with Christ. What is true of Christ has become true of us, according to His human nature, what He's done. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul continues this theme. And He hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are united with Christ. We are sitting with Him right now in heavenly places. That is, this, He is representing us. And because we are united with Him as our federal head, it can be said that's true of us. Because we are in Him and He is in us. Therefore, He represents us. He is seated in heaven. We are seated in heaven with Him. This is a part of the truth of the union with Christ. Paul says this as well in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. And you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, this is the truth of you and I, that we are in Christ Jesus, and all that is true of Him is true of us. We've been united with Him by faith, and all that He has done has been made true of us, and that is a glorious truth. Warren Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, These are the greatest things you will ever hear. This is the truth about yourself. Do not be thrown by these terms. These are scriptural statements. Of course they're difficult, but anything worth having is difficult. If you're not interested in it because it's difficult, I say that you'd better make sure that you are a Christian at all. And Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying that these are so glorious truths. These truths free us. These truths are our heritage. These truths are our glory. That if this does not move you, if this does not interest you, I would ask you to check your pulse. Because Jesus Christ has done all these things. The second Adam has come to the fight. He's defeated Satan. He's died for us. He's defeated death. He's resurrected. He's coming again. He's won eternal life for us. He's redeemed God's creation. He's united us by His Spirit to Himself. Wretched sinners that did not deserve it. So that He might show to us in the coming ages the marvelous grace of God. Forever and ever and ever. And I have to say to you this morning. There's only two types of people. Either you're in Christ or you're in Adam. So those who are hearing my voice this morning that are not in Christ, that are yet in their sins, that are yet in Adam, I tell you, come to Christ and live this morning. Repent of your sins. Believe on Jesus Christ. Be united to Him by faith and receive redemption. If you hear His voice this morning, harden not your hearts. He's reaching out to you this morning. Repent. Repent and turn to Jesus Christ. Be cleansed by His blood. Be clothed in His righteousness. Be made a new person. Be crucified with Him. Again, I say, you're either in Christ or in Adam. You are either dead in sin or dead to sin. There's only two people in this world. You can't have any, any position in the middle. You're either a child of God through Jesus Christ or you're a child of the devil. There is no in between, there is no affinity between the two, and never the twain shall meet. Child of God in Christ, or child of the devil in Adam. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 1, verse 30, But of him, that is of God, 
You are in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He has made us that in Christ Jesus, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Experientially, this has all not been worked out yet, but I am already finally redeemed in Him. That is the truth of the gospel. It's the golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. Whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. This is the chain, the golden chain of redemption. If you have been justified, if you've been brought to Christ, if you're united with him, you will be glorified. There's no doubt about it. For those who are in Christ, you will be justified. I mean, you will be glorified, for you are justified. Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say, If we are united to Christ, then we are united to Him at all points of His activity on our behalf. We share in His death, because we are baptized into His death. We share in His resurrection, because we are resurrected with Christ. We share in His ascension, because we have been raised with Him. We share in his heavenly session because we sit in the heavenly places so that our life is hidden with Christ and God. We share in his promised return. For when Christ, who is our life, appears, we shall also appear with him in glory. End quote. So these are the objective federal realities of being united with Christ. So that's the first consequence of the union with Christ. There's much more that can be said about that, but we must move on to the other points for time's sake. The second element is this subjective reality of being united with Christ, this spiritual reality. This is, we become conformed to his likeness according to his human nature. Paul continues to play this out in Romans chapter 6. After establishing that we're united with Christ in all these ways federally, he says in chapter 11, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This word reckon in the Greek is lagizomai. It means account yourselves, calculate yourselves, uh, consider yourselves. It says in this translation, reckon yourselves. Because of all that's true of we just said, what Paul has just said, because of all that I just said about union with Christ, therefore, calculate, consider, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ. This is a subjective part of it. Work it out. If I am united with Christ in all these things, therefore, I should live a certain way. I'm dead to sin. It doesn't have any power over me anymore. I'm united with Christ. Christ lives in me. You need to calculate and think these things through. Paul goes on to say this is a, such an interesting truth of the New Testament here in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. This concept in the New Testament is, this idea Paul is trying to say is, you are unleavened, now get the leaven out. You are holy in Christ, now be holy. It's this idea again and again in the New Testament. There is an objective federal consequence of uniting with, union with Christ. And because of that, the apostles exhort the people of God, because this is true, become holy. You are holy, now be holy. You are unleavened, get the leaven out. You are holy, realize who you are and start acting like it, is what they're trying to say. This is the teaching of Scripture. Realize first who you are in Jesus Christ and then work it out. And then realize it and live accordingly. And of course, 
there's even more consequences to our union besides that. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, Oh, that I might know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. So one large element, subjective and spiritual element of being united with Christ is the reality of suffering with Christ and being persecuted. And this is where the doctrine of the union with Christ becomes very practical in our day and age and where it links with the guarantee of persecution for all true Christians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but to also suffer for His sake. So not only have you been given the gift of faith, not only is faith a gift by which we believe in Jesus Christ and unite with Him, if you've given that same gift to believe on Him and unite with Him, you're also given the guarantee that you will suffer with Him. That is a part of our union with Christ. For His sake you will suffer. Jesus Himself explains this in John chapter 15. He leaves no stone unturned in this beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, says Jesus, speaking to his disciples, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word what I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. He who hates me hates my father also. That is a powerful truth. When we are united with Christ and we are promised to suffer with Him, we are persecuted for Him, the reason we are being persecuted, I hope you're seeing this, is not because we're unlikable. It's because we are united with Christ and Christ is in us and the world hates Christ. You're going to be persecuted because Christ is in you and the world hates Christ. And Jesus Christ says, if the world hates me, they'll hate you too. Because I'm in you. And they'll see that I'm in you. And therefore, they're going to hate you. This is the reality we're united with Christ, therefore persecution is promised, but the Lord says that it's because of me. It's because you're in me, and I'm in you. And that is why you'll be receiving persecution. And interesting enough, in this passage, very briefly, there's a lot of talk about people believing in God. A general deism of saying, I believe in God, I believe there's one true God, but I, I believe there's many ways. I, I, you know, I, I think Jesus was a good teacher, but I don't think he's the way to the, to the Father or anything like that. I think that's too exclusive. Well, this passage explicitly says, if you hate me, you hate the Father also. Jesus says, if you hate me, you hate God the Father also. God said, this is my beloved Son, hear him. So all people that say, oh, I know God, but I'm not, I don't know much about Jesus Christ, they hate, they hate God. They do not love the Father. God says, this is my Son, I've given all judgment to the Son, that all who honor the Father might also honor the Son. So if you're going to honor the Father, if you say you're a believer in God, God says, honor my Son, and then you'll truly love me. If you love me, you'll love the Son. But remember, brethren, we're promised persecution, and that's a vexing, hard reality. But you have to remember that vengeance is the Lord's. We see in Revelation 
chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, this reality of persecution. And when he opened the fifth seal, that is the lamb opening the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they upheld. And they cried out in a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood and judge those who dwell upon the earth? Then each of them was given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers, were killed, just as they had been killed. This is a searching passage. What it's teaching here is that but in eternity past, in the book of life, as it were, in the annals of heaven, there is a set number of saints that are going to be persecuted and die. No more, no less. There's a full number that have to be fulfilled before the Lord rains down His vengeance on this world. And there's a promise that all those who are in Christ Jesus, even though they are promised persecution, they will be avenged. They absolutely will be avenged. As God is true, as sure as that number is, so sure is the vengeance and the wrath of God upon all those who would kill His saints. Again, brethren, they don't ultimately hate you. They hate Christ. And this is His battle and His vengeance. Whosoever destroys the temple of God, Paul says, him shall God destroy. It says of the Son of Man, while He was on the sword of Jesus Christ, He shall burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the wrath of the Lamb talked about in the book of Revelation. So this is not just simply doctrine, well, we're going to be persecuted, there's nothing we can do about it, and nothing's really going to happen. No, we will be avenged. Jesus will avenge His name and His people on the last day. We will have vengeance. We're not to take it into our own hands, brethren. Vengeance is the Lord. I will repay. So, how should we respond then to persecution? If this is the reality that vengeance is the Lord's, we're promised to be persecuted because we're united with Christ, because the world hates Christ and we're in Christ, how should we respond? Well, Jesus gives us that in the Sermon on the Mount of the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10. Blessed or happy, Mercurios is the word in Greek, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or kingdom of heaven, yes. Blessed are ye, when men shall revile you, and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. That's the promise. Jesus says, blessed are you when you receive persecution for my name's sake. But we have to qualify this here. This is a very interesting passage. And many people have misunderstood it. So forgive a long quote here, but I think it's very pertinent that we understand this. In this day and age that we're in right now, we need to understand what this promise is for blessedness under persecution. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Let us start with a few negatives. It does not say, Blessed are they who are persecuted because they are objectionable. It does not say, Blessed are those who are being persecuted as Christians because they are seriously lacking in wisdom and are really foolish and unwise in what they regard as being their testimony. Let me put it another negative way. We are not told, Blessed are the persecuted because they are fanatical. Neither does it say, Blessed are the persecuted because they are overzealous. 
Fanaticism can lead to persecution. But fanaticism is never commended in the New Testament. Let me now add another negative in a different category. The text surely does not even mean blessed are they that are persecuted for a cause. This is a little subtle. I know that the two things often become one, and many of the great martyrs and confessors were at one and the same time suffering for righteousness' sake and for a cause. But I'm trying to remind every Christian person of this vital distinction. If you and I begin to mix our religion and politics, then we must not be surprised if we receive persecution. I am not saying that a man should not stand for his political principles. I am simply reminding you that the promise attached to this beatitude does not apply to that. If you choose to suffer politically, go on and do so. But do not have a grudge against God if you find that this beatitude, this promise, is not verified in your life. The beatitude and the promise refer specifically to suffering for righteousness' sake. May God give us grace and wisdom and understanding to discriminate between our political prejudices and our spiritual principles, end quote. Now, what does that mean? I think it's rather clear. What Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his exposition of this part of Matthew is that to be persecuted for righteousness' sake is where the blessing comes from. And to be persecuted for righteousness' sake means basically that you're being persecuted, you're being like the Lord Jesus Christ. To be righteous is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And these beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who are mournful, who are meek, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers. And of course, blessed are those who rejoice when they're persecuted to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, to live these beatitudes out. When you manifest the, the fruits of the Spirit, when you manifest this attitude, these beatitudes to be like Jesus, you'll receive persecution because you're being like Him and therefore you're being righteous and you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And therefore, in that instance, you can rejoice and leap for joy because that blessing and that promise of blessing is upon you because you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're being like Jesus. Ultimately, it is to be light. It's to be like Jesus. He is light. And light exposes the darkness. And so when darkness is exposed, the darkness does not like to be exposed, as it says in John 3. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So if you're persecuted for being a light, being salt, being like the Lord Jesus Christ, manifesting the fruits of the Spirit, then that blessing is yours. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Again, I read it again. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which are before you. Ultimately, when we, are rege- when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, it's just another ground of our assurance. We can say, thank you for giving me another ground for my assurance. Thank you for making my call and election sure. We should respond as the apostles did when they were beaten and shamed for Christ. They were left the temple rejoicing for being counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. 
That is a radical, radical way of living. When you're persecuted for Jesus' name, for his righteousness' sake, you can rejoice and say, thank you for making my assurance even more full now that I'm a Christian. That is so countercultural, so counterintuitive to all that we are, but by the Spirit of the living God in you, you will be able to do that for righteousness' sake. Peter adds his witness to this. Listen to him carefully here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 through 19. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. For the time has come for the judgment to begin at the house of God. If it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. You see what Peter says the same thing here. Don't be persecuted. Don't suffer for being a murderer or a busybody or all these other things. If you were to suffer, make sure it's because you're being a righteous person. You're being a Christian. You're being like Christ. And then blessed are you. Peter says the same thing as Jesus. Blessed are you. If you suffer as a Christian, blessed are you. Paul says, again, all those who desire to live a godly life in, there's that concept of union again, in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, brethren, there's even more that could be said there. We must move on to closing applications to what I'm saying here with union with Christ and persecution. Outside of the obvious fact that there needs to be more prayer, we need to obviously pray more that we would grow in this fullness and understanding of who Christ is in our union, that we would pray for greater fruits of the Spirit, that we would pray to have these beatitudes exemplified in our life, that if we do face persecution, that it's for Christ's sake. I want to concentrate on two other points, though. The first is this should cause us to love our brethren more. The doctrine of the union with Christ and persecution that comes from it should cause us to love our, our, our brethren more. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus gives this very famous story here of the coming of the Son of Man, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then will He sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, 
and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? And the king will answer them and say, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. What, what Jesus is trying to teach here in Matthew 25, a helpful illustration I, I heard from Brother Paul Washer preaching a few months back, I think would, would help illustrate this point more. Back in uh, the times of the early church under the reign of Nero, uh, the Church of Rome would many times uh, meet outside of the city because it was illegal to be a Christian. And so Christians would gather, as it were, out in the, the woods, in the fields outside Rome. And you can picture it in your mind, a hypothetical scenario where these Christians are meeting and gathering and worshiping the Lord together in, uh, at night in the woods outside Rome. And they have to sneak in and out of the city so that they're not found. And the Christians are enjoying sweet fellowship with one another that night. And so as the service ends, they all depart and go their separate ways and their routes to get back into the city. And the next night, they all gather together again. And they're missing some brethren at this point. And a dear sister comes and tells them, some of the brethren on there coming in the, the night before were captured. And they were found out to be Christians. They were put into jail. And, and now we, we can't get to them. But what should we do? And immediately some of the brethren say, okay, well, I'm going to go back in. I'm going to get some food. We're going to go to the jail. I, I know some family members. We can get them some warm clothes. Uh, you and you brethren go over there. We're going to do this. And they start immediately thinking of how we can help these brethren. And all of a sudden there's a small party within the same group that says, whoa, I didn't sign up for this. No, no, no. We, if we unite ourselves, if we publicly show ourselves helping these people, we'll be thrown in jail too. No, 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 we can't do that. It's too risky. I, this is too much. And they leave. And the others go on, and they help their brethren in jail. Many people might say, well, well yeah, the, what you're seeing there is maybe some mature and immature Christians there. But what's really happening there is what you're seeing is you're seeing a separation of the sheep from the goats. Because they do not love Christ. Christ is in their brothers. As, as This is Matthew 25. Jesus is saying, as, as you did not come and do it to me, you did not visit me in prison. I was there. I am in your fellow Christians. If you love Christ, and Christ dwells in you, and you say you love your brethren, and you believe that Christ dwells in them, and yet when it comes to help them, you say, oh, I can't do that. How does that, how does that work? Jesus says in that day, 
You did not do it unto me then. You did not love me. Brothers and sisters, this should cause us union with Christ in the face of persecution should cause us to love our brethren even more. The apostle of love, John, says this about this concept of loving our brethren. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You know, many Christians talk about John 3.16. But I ask, do we memorize and do we know 1 John 3.16 as well as we do John 3.16? 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods, and sees his brother in need, and shuts up his heart from him... How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Many people say they love Jesus. That's a, that's a thing now. You know, oh, instead of saying you're a Christian, people say, well, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Okay, okay. You love Jesus. Well, if you love Jesus, you'll love the saints of God. If you love Jesus, you'll love the brethren. If you love Jesus, you will love his sheep, your fellow saints in the land. For all those people that say they love Jesus and they don't love Christians, they don't love their fellow brethren, the Bible clearly says that they're a liar. No, the truth is not in them. Many people want to say that they want to be close to Jesus. And Jesus responds to them and says, I am among the candlesticks on the Lord's day. Where are you? I am outside the camp, as it says in Hebrews, suffering. Where are you? Jesus invites us as we're united with him, to suffer with him, to, to, to endure with him, to love the brethren with him, to minister, and to worship him on the Lord's day amidst his people as he is there walking amongst the candlesticks, the different churches. He is there in our midst. If you love Jesus, if you're united with him, you'll love the brethren too, without a doubt. Number two, finally, we are purged because of this doctrine of union and persecution. We are purged from the love of the things of this world and our faith is purified. That's a closing application here. When we face persecution, our faith is purified. We are purged from the love of the things of this world. As Martin Luther wrote in the hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God, he said, Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I pray that we can all sing that with full conviction that we agree. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. Peter agrees, he says, First Peter, first Peter 1. It says, Now for a little while, if need be, You've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The thing in this world that is more precious than anything else is our faith. And trials and persecution purify that faith and make it more pure 
And that should be to us above everything else, is that our faith would be purified and that this testing we would rejoice in because it is for our good and it is promised to us. And we can rejoice in that when it comes because we know that that promise, as Peter says, the glory and spirit rests upon us when we are reviled for Christ. Timothy Brindle says that, in effect, Jesus is saying, I am bringing many sons to glory. All those who suffered with me, whether they were after or before me, with your trials I am acquainted well. I blaze the trail. If you endure, you'll rise forever. We'll be glorified together. Amen. Romans 8.17 says the same thing. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified together. Let's pray. O Lord, our Savior, our covenant head, Lord, we rejoice in you this morning that we are united by faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you, O Lord, for the example of the saints of the past who have trodden these trails before us. Help us not to be discouraged, O Lord. Help us to rejoice and to be filled with the glory which is inexpressible because we are one with you and you and us. Help us, O Lord, to take what was said today and treasure it in our hearts and to work it out in our lives. Please cause us to love our brethren more, Lord. Please help us to rejoice when we are persecuted. Help us not to fear it. Help us to commit our souls to a faithful creator when these things happen. Help us to be patient, Lord. Please give us wisdom in the coming days and weeks and months to come. Help us to remember these things, O Lord, and help us to glorify you and suffer worthy of you, O Lord. Please give us strength, Lord. Please encourage the saints in this room, O Lord. Please save those, O Lord, who are not in your kingdom, who are yet strangers to grace and strangers of the covenant of God, who are strangers to Christ. I pray, O Lord, that you be glorified, that you'd help us, and that you would be the after preacher in all these things. Thank you for your grace this morning. Help us now, O Lord, to lift up our hearts in singing the hymn that has been chosen, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.